Well, hello, sword people. Clash, clash, clash. This is Guy Windsor, except it's not. It's Ariel Anderson interviewing Guy Windsor like Dr. Guy Windsor, like an amateur, because I haven't listened to your introduction really enough to do it perfectly. But I know the sword people bit is very important. How was that? <laughs> that was excellent. <laughs> so what are we doing? We, you interviewed me um, yeah. last month for your podcast, which was very lovely. And I really enjoyed talking to you. And you said in, during the interview, you said which town you lived in. And then the next week, I realized I was in your town and I invited you out for lunch. And it was a lovely thing. And I thought, what an exciting new friendship this is. And then I asked so many questions because I was so excited. I was so nosy that you invited me to interview you. That's what happened, basically. Yeah, basically. Um, and, you know, it's, it's episode 100 of the podcast. And we have this thing for numbers that have zeros on them. I don't know why exactly. But, you know, episode 100, it's kind of big thing and so for episode 50 I got uh, my friend Jessica Finley to interview me for the show oh. and then I thought well hang on it's been about a year since since you know yep. and then the thing is even when we would when, when I was interviewing you yes um, there was an awful lot of inquisitiveness coming the other way yes and but also coming from a perspective that is quite different to Jessica's, for example, because, you know, Jess is like a vastly experienced historical martial arts instructor. Yes. And yep. a lot of the listeners on the show are beginners, right? Right, and so, yes. And so it occurred to me that actually the kinds of questions you may be likely to ask are probably closer to the things that some of the beginners may be oh, interested in hearing about. yes. So it just struck me as a, uh, well, here's a naturally inquisitive person. Uh-huh. Yeah. And... And also a sort of sword beginner, um, but who's been on the show before, so people may recognise her. Yes, hopefully. assuming they're not already massive fans of your work, <laughs> which which wouldn't surprise me, knowing what I know about the sword world. <laughs> well, and I sort of I hope that there's been some cross pollination that some people have found your podcast through me, because I'm sure there are plenty of kinky people who are also interested in swords, just like there are lots of sword people, hopefully, who are also somewhat interested in kinkiness. So I kind of, I hope there's a little crossover. Well, we'll put it this way. I, I've had quite a few very positive messages and um, practically nothing, even no, nothing kind of snarky or negative. Oh, did you so, not? That's nice. Nothing yeah. furious. Yeah, yeah. There's been none of that... <laughs> which I was kind of expecting because yeah, me too. You know, this, this sort of thing often does rear its ugly head. Yes, and and you know, looking at the um, sort of unsubscribes to the newsletter because I, I send out some yes. podcast to the newsletter. I mean, every time you send out an email to a mailing list, you always lose some subscribers. It's just yes. normal attrition. Yes, and the attrition rate was well within normal bounds so it wasn't like Aww. we were making a whole bunch of nasty people very angry by having someone who does sex stuff for work on on the show so that makes me very happy because it feels like probably evidence of social progress um and it also means that probably the people listening to your podcast are by and large not massively prejudiced which is a nice thought 
Yeah. Thank you, everyone, who is not massively prejudiced. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, funnily, one, one guy on the Discord, um, he actually comes to my regular morning sessions. Mm. So I, I, I know him reasonably well through that. And he was like, who would have thought Guy gets a world-famous BDSM model onto the show? And actually, the best bit about it for me was the property investment advice. Oh, <laughs> that, makes, that makes me very happy. It makes me very, very happy. Yeah, shall, I start, shall I start interviewing you now? Well, you can if you want. I feel like the challenge is going to be to keep to the questions I've written down rather okay. than just add a whole lot of supplemental ones. But we'll see. How we are. Well, well I'm, we're in a rush, so, you know. Yeah. All right. Are you ready? I am, certainly so. So, you and I, you are a historical sword fighting instructor. What is, like, what's the best way of saying it? Because that's not um, what is it? It's, uh, that's actually a really diff- difficult question. I mean, I changed mm. my job title about six years ago to Consulting Swordsman. Beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's like, my, my, my theory was, you know, if Sherlock Holmes can be a consulting detective and Moriarty a consulting criminal, why can't I be a consulting swordsman? And it turns out, I can. And it's good. And it covers the whole range of what you do. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, I write books and I produce online courses and I teach in-person classes and I run various things. I also have um, a few students who are, um, who I am teaching how to make a living doing what they want to do. Like a kind of mentor, like yeah, 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 like exactly. All right. Um, so you're a consulting swordsman. I'm yeah. a BDSM model. These two jobs are almost exactly the same thing. Um, and so I'm going to interview you. About... <laughs> okay. <laughs> they are not almost the same thing. But well, no, no, weapons control very important. <laughs> there are and some things that are in common, maybe. Like, yeah, like informed consent, for example. Yes, absolutely. Right? I mean. The thing that makes what we're doing when we're actually trying to hit each other with swords ethical is the fact that both people know exactly what they're getting into and have agreed to the details of what they're going to be doing. Yes, and are somewhat aware of the risks. Right. Yes. Yes. All right. So I wrote down some questions about areas of your life that I'm particularly curious about. So let's get started. The first question is, what is your first sword-related memory? And did it feel important at the time? Okay. I don't have a first sword-related memory that I can pin down. Mm-hmm. Blades have always been massively attractive to me. So do you right. remember an early experience of finding a blade massively attractive? Um... I mean, you probably have to ask my parents because it goes yeah. back. It, go, it goes back sort of beyond conscious memory. But, like, for example, <laughs> um, in my stocking, when I, I must have been, we were living in Argentina, so I must have been. It must have been the Christmas where I, shortly after I turned six years old. Yeah. And in my stocking, yeah, there was a little penknife in the shape of a fish. Okay. Right, which I yep. still have, obviously. Uh-huh. Right. And I opened it to open the other presents with and, of course, cut myself in the process. Uh-huh. Right. But I didn't actually care. I just sat up in bed, sat up in bed and bled over everything because I had a knife. 
And that was wow. that, that that overwhelmed any sort of oh my god, I've cut myself. Because you know you know, as as a kid who was massively keen on woodwork, for example, I'd cut myself yeah. before. It wasn't like the first time no. you know, blood had come out of my hands. Um so yeah, I was more interested in the knife and having the knife and whatever, and the fact that I just cut myself opening it. Didn't, I, think, I think my main concern was if my mum saw that I'd cut myself with yeah. a knife, she might take the knife away. Yes, which she might well have done, I imagine. But she didn't. Do you remember um, what you wanted to do with this knife? Open the presents. Okay, okay. So it wasn't like you wanted to fight someone to the death with it. You just no, liked no, no, having no, no, it. No, okay. no, no, no. And, and here's a funny thing, right? For me, martial arts mm-hmm. and blades mm-hmm. didn't really overlap. Until I was in my 20s. Oh, my goodness. Right. I just assumed that it would. All right. Yeah, well, one would assume that it would. but And and I don't really know how the sort of division happened. But I I started doing karate in various forms when I was about nine, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty much as soon as such things were available. And did that feel special to you as well? Oh, totally special. Yeah, okay. okay, Martial arts. Right. Because, okay... I think the origin of the whole martial arts thing for me was um, a book, um, Asterix and the Olympic Games, something like oh, that. Oh, I remember that. Right. I loved it. Yes, right. yes. And there's this bit where, where all, all the 12 charts of Asterix or something like that. Uh-huh. So he has to he has to do basically, the Asterix and Olympics have to do this, basically a whole bunch of Olympic challenges, a bit like, like Hercules' um, mm-hmm. challenges. And one of the ones is, they they get challenged by this, this little Japanese dude in a judo gi, right? Who sort of pastes Obelix completely, mm-hmm. kind of picks him up and sort of bashes him against the ground, <laughs> like like you know beating dust out of a carpet. And so Obelix is like, even though he's way bigger and stronger, is like just completely destroyed. But Asterix goes like, "Oh, that's really impressive. Can you teach me how to do it?" And the judo guy is flattered. And teaches Asterix how to put him in locks and stuff. And of course, it's like Asterix is standing on his chest and pulling up on his hand, and there's this kind of knot appears in the man's hand, in the man's arm, right? Um, it's comic book stuff. Yeah. And, or kids' comic book stuff. Yeah. Right? And then at the end of it, there he is with his arms and legs literally in knots. And he says, Yes, I am completely immobilized. So, of course, Asterix has now won. Yes. Very cleverly. Right? Exactly. So, what I got out of that was. Martial arts exist. Mm-hmm. Small people can beat the living shit out of big people. And my, mm-hmm. my older brother at that time wasn't terribly nice. Okay. So that was very attractive. And cleverness is better than strength. Yes. Right? Yes. And so I got totally into the whole martial arts thing at that point. Right. Uh, but it took a few years before martial arts became available. We were living in Argentina at that point. Mm-hmm. And there just wasn't anything around. So we're living sort of in, near Salta in a place called Cerrillos, which is just basically a village outside Salta in northern Argentina. So there wasn't any martial arts clubs. This is the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to Botswana and eventually we found a karate chap who was uh-huh. basically this, um, this Korean guy who was running karate classes for like three or four kids. Right. At the golf club in Gaborone in Botswana. Oh, wow. So we're doing that for a bit. Okay. Um, 
And so that sort of thing was, I mean, I, I always knew I wanted to do swords as well. But you but, hadn't found but, any. Right. And my mum had told me that, you know, sword fighting was called fencing and it's done like this. And we'd done a little bit because her dad, my grandfather, was a fencer. Right. Okay. And yeah. interesting bit of historical martial arts trivia, right? My grandfather fenced with Leon Paul, oh. right? Founder of the Leon oh, Paul yes, Fencing Empire. Yes, yes, Leon Paul fenced with Alfred Hutton, right? Alfred Hutton wrote like some of the foundational texts for historical martial arts in the late 19th century and early 20th. Mm -hmm. Things like The Sword in the Centuries. And there's a lineage that can be traced back from there all the way to Angelo and beyond. So, yeah. Oh, so, so this probably cool. made you quite happy. <laughs> yeah, when I eventually found it out much later on. So, so anyway, so I managed to, to get into sport fencing when I was at school. Because right. um, when I moved to a public school, which is Oakham, they they had a fencing club, so I joined that and basically did sport fencing for from the age of like thirteen to eighteen at school, and then carried it on at university. So did that feel somewhat kind of magical to you? Yeah, it was swords. Okay. It felt it felt like swords, and okay. it was because I wasn't terribly interested in the competitions. I did the competitions because right. they're a necessary sure. part of the training process. But the electrification stuff, I just found really tedious, like putting on all the gear. And it's just right. just annoying. Um, and, of course, it encourages all sorts of stuff that wouldn't work in a real sword fight. Yes. But at that yes. point still, it was like pretty... It was it was it felt real because it was the closest thing to real yeah. that was available. Yes. Um, but in my head, fencing was fencing and martial arts were martial arts and there was not no real connection between them, which... When you're comparing sport fencing to, for example, karate, that's kind of true. They're trained differently, yes. they're approached differently, there's, it's just different. Um, so then when I got to university, I was doing fencing on Mondays and Wednesdays, Tai Chi on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Kabuto, which is Japanese weapon stuff on Fridays, karate on Saturdays, and there was usually some kind of martial arts thing on Sunday too. So it was like between, you sort of patchworked together an approximation of what you would eventually yeah be able to that's, do that, that's fair um so if so, you were like may i ask if you were 10 years old now mm -hmm. and growing up in the uk what would you what would the ideal thing for you to be doing now like could someone who was a child now come and join your classes or are there are there classes they could do absolutely or would they have okay it depends where they are yeah um and i've personally never run kids classes specifically mm-hmm um, the youngest person who's ever successfully joined the regular classes um, was 10 when he started. But that's unusual. Most, yeah. even at 14, are possibly a bit young. Right. But um, there are plenty of other clubs that do kids' classes. And okay, so they wouldn't kids... have to do what you did. They'd be able to find no. like a closer approximation of what they were into. Yeah. Although, honestly... Mm -hmm. There is a lot of merit in doing other martial arts, not just the swords. Yes. N not least because most historical martial arts instructors are amateurs mm -hmm. and have a specific interest in a particular bit of historical martial arts. Maybe they do yeah. early 17th century rapier and associated stuff, or maybe they do medieval stuff. Or maybe they do small sword or whatever. And many of them 
as why should they don't have a broad base in like kicking arts and grappling arts and that sort of thing. So honestly, I would say, you know, if for for, for like small kids, judo is probably the best starting point. Okay. Because it teaches them grounding and mechanics and grappling and how to throw. But it's, they have, judo has been developed to teach children these things. Right. Right. And it has a really, really good children's training program. Right. And because you're not punching and kicking, you can start really young and actually really do it relatively yes, safely. Yes, understood. Yes. Right? Yes. So, and then maybe after a couple of years of judo, maybe add taekwondo or some kind of, something with kicks and punches. Mm-hmm. So you learn how to use your hands and feet and any kind of weapons practice at that point or as early as you can. So you get used to using a tool. Yes. So actually um, what you did, what you put together for yourself through your childhood and teenage life. It wasn't bad, actually. You yeah, did, no, yeah. No. It wasn't yeah. like a bad beginning at all. Like you might, if you were doing it now, you'd have the privilege of some more choices. But basically yeah. you did put together a kind of um, training regime for yourself that was fairly sensible. Yeah, not that I knew what I was doing. No, no, no. <laughs> Most of that was just luck. Well, you gravitated, um, I guess, towards the stuff that meant something to you. I suppose. Yeah, but also the stuff that was available. I mean, yes. really, it would have been it would be very useful to me now if I had a some kind of judo or wrestling background when I was a kid. That would right. be very helpful, and I don't have that because um, you couldn't find that at the time. Yeah, and on, honestly, I'm instinctively a hitter, not a grabber. Okay. So, so if you know, I would given the choice at the age of ten. Between, say, judo and karate, I had to pick karate without even thinking about right. it. Right. Because yes. punching and kicking makes more sense to me intuitively than grabbing and throwing. Got you. Yes. Right? But a complete martial art has all of these things. Yes. Yes. So if you had had the opportunity to add judo into your training, it would have probably been. Yeah. yeah or or jujitsu or any of the other, or, or just Greek or Roman wrestling. I mean, there's nothing, absolutely yes. nothing wrong with like American collegiate wrestling. Some of those wrestlers are phenomenal. Um, it's just the rules are a bit different, so it looks a bit different. But I think the fundamental skill set is pretty much the same as it is with judo. Okay. Thank you. I had sort of assumed you'd have a story about being eight years old and being given a plastic sword and suddenly your kind of whole world opening up. And actually, it was a, it was a sort of more gradual thing than that. Yeah. Uh, although, actually, you reminded me of um, when we were living in Botswana, uh, my two best friends after my the problem with like the sort of expat sort of mm-hmm. migrant lifestyle is you make friends with kids and then they go away somewhere yeah yeah um so like my second round of best friends oh. in Botswana <laughs> oh. um Patrick and Niels used to come around to my house and we had I found these metal poles in the garage Wonderful. and two of them we called naginata which is like a Japanese glaive um, basically a blade on a stick. Okay. And one of them was like shorter and that was the katana because we were dead into Japanese weapons okay. back then. And we would just fight each other with these things like all afternoon. And then after a bit, we got into Dungeons and Dragons a little bit. Right. <laughs> I never really got into Dungeons and Dragons properly because in, we were like, okay, hang on. You're supposed to fight this troll or whatever and yeah. you roll a dice to see what happens. 
We yeah. could do that. Yeah. Or we could go outside and one of us could be the troll and the other yeah. one could be the person who's rolling the dice and we could actually have the fight and I see who wins. I see why that would be more appealing to you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Did you so, do each other terrible damage? Or were you all no. right? No, okay. no, no. Um, I mean, I remember like I sprained my wrist once because Niels was really good at tripping. We called him <laughs> a 10th Dan Tripper. Um I mean, tripping as in tripping somebody up, yes, not as in yes. taking uh, advanced substances. No, well done for not <laughs> uh, doing that. Because we were like, we were like, you know, eleven or something, and he had, he had, he was really good at hip throws. And one time, he he got in under my weapon or whatever, and he did a hip throw on me, and I put my hand out and I sprained my wrist, and and so I had to use my katana with one hand. There is something special, isn't there, about a fighting-related injury or an injury yes. acquired in the pursuit of the thing you love. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that a lot of historical martial arts people do after tournaments or whatever is they is they put photographs of their bruises on yeah. the internet. Like, yeah. oh, that was a really good shot from I so-and-so. I understand or, that. <laughs> I've still got do. a scar on, yes. <laughs> I've got a scar on one knuckle from a sword. And, mm. oh, I love it. It's tiny. <laughs> no one can see it, but, oh, I love it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a scar on, on, on this finger uh-huh. um, where it got broken by a longsword. Oh, that's a wonderful story. Yes, yeah. exactly, well, exactly. Look, let the record show, this was before I turned professional and I actually had that day got a pair of steel gauntlets in, in, oh. in the post. I'd ordered them from the Czech Republic from what used to be K&K Art, was the name of the, the, the manufacturer. And they were there and I had them and I just did a little bit of bish bash bosh with my friend Paul before we kind of got the session going and he broke my finger because my steel gauntlets were in my fencing bag and not on my hands. Ah, yes. Because the stupid, it runs very deep in some places. But still, when you say it, it sounds very cool. It doesn't sound like it was because you didn't do the basic putting on your safety equipment. It just sounds cool. Right. Although I I have a scar on my head here. Oh, that's Um, grand. How did you get that? (laughs) That was great. Um, (laughs) Okay, when I decided to move to Finland, I challenged everyone in the Dawn Duelist Society to a duel so that we could, you know, as a kind of like, I want to fight everyone before I go. <laughs> oh, um, this is so romantic. And, <laughs> and, fabulous. And, and in that process, uh, you know, I actually have a photograph of all the people who I fought that day. And there's about 12 of them. And the last one, a guy called Kieran, who he was tired for some reason. I think he'd had a night shift the night before or something like that. And he was not really like in a fit condition to fight. And he said so. He okay. said so. Okay. I, being a fool, persuaded him to fence me anyway. And we were fencing with long swords with the standard protection at the time, which was like an ordinary fencing mask and steel gauntlets and padded canvases and whatever. Okay. Right. And I threw a sword at his head. Not literally, I mean, no, that's no, what I cut his head. And he kind of got out of the way and bang, hit me in the head. But he was really tired and he was under some pressure. And so he did it instinctively. And it caved in the back of my fencing mask and split my scalp. And I had blood pouring down oh. my face. Wow. But I get what... The, the, um, 
I think it was Rosie, uh, somebody there was taking photographs of the fight and we actually have a photograph of the moment he oh. hit me, right? And of course, after photos and a photograph of me like holding my head with blood pouring down my face with everyone else who fenced me that day, um, all in the same photo because it was great. Um, and then I guess better though. Obviously, head injury. I couldn't drive. Oh. Uh, I had driven to practice. Right. My girlfriend uh, at the time didn't have a driving license, so the car just stayed where it was. And um, so my friend Paul drove me to the hospital, right? Yes. With my girlfriend. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, the hospital, head injury straight to the front of the queue because, you know, they're careful about these things. And, of course, it's a sword, whole bunch of, like, student doctors and stuff <laughs> coming to see an actual sword injury. And as it was, it was just a split scalp and, you know, three, st- three staples out of a staple gun and, you know, a card saying, you know, if you find this person, bring him straight to the hospital or whatever. Right. You know, if, so, like, if you start to get dizzy, you can wave that at a taxi and they'll take you to the hospital and the hospital will pay them. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so they take these things very seriously. So, uh, in the hospital, we weren't there for very long. Um, then we thought, well, okay, I can't drive, so we might as well go to the pub, right? And Surely so that's not the best thing to do. No, well, I, it was feel fine. like it, it was, isn't. It was, it was fine. I mean, so when we get to the pub, and when we're at, outside the pub, I was like, hang on, Paul, this is a perfect opportunity for a wind-up, right? So I waited at the car with my girlfriend, and Paul went in, and there was you know, Kieran sort of nursing a pint, feeling terribly guilty and worried. And a few of the other guys were there. And Paul's like, well, I took him to the hospital and everything. And when we got there, he just sort of collapsed on the floor. And, you know, Rosie's staying with him. And the doctors say, well, no more tomorrow. Right? So, of course, Kieran turns white. Poor Kieran. <laughs> ah, ah, but wait, it gets better. Right? So, so then, of course, I march in all, all smiley or whatever. I go, Kieran, you owe me a pint. <laughs> and he's like, you fucker. And I'm yes. like, <laughs> but you see, here's the thing. He felt totally guilty. And this one. And as soon as I did that, as soon as, as, soon as we played the prank on him, Aww. he just felt totally much better. Yes. Because like I we had, that. Slate was more than clear. And in fact, he kind of, you know, owed us another smack in the head. That is probably actually a very good way to handle it. But what an yeah. amazing, what an amazing injury to have. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't yeah, great so at the time, but that's quite cool now. Honestly, the finger was much worse. Okay. With the finger, I actually went into shock. I had to like, oh, lie down wow. with my feet up and everything. Because a broken bone, sometimes it does that. I didn't know that. But right? I've broken fingers and it can be I very mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like... Um, you know, the shock you get from like bleeding out, but you no. know, I sort of went all woozy. You know, fortunately, oh. you know, I never like first aid and whatever, so I just sort of lay on the floor and put my feet up on something and um, said, uh, Yeah, okay, I better just wait here for a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but like injury, proper sword injuries, these are proper sword injuries. Yes, but but okay, here's we should probably flag up it is actually not cool to get injured. You're, I'm and, sure you're right. Right, and 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 these <laughs> these cases of me getting injured were entirely due to me being thoroughly stupid in the moment. That is a right? very professional thing to say. Well done. Yeah. But it's true. Yes. And there have been no such injuries since. Which is obviously good. 
But let me just flag that. Yes, you're very responsible, but still very cool to have a sword. Like yes. injury to your head. It feels yes. <laughs> it just feels like the sort of thing that should happen to someone who's it's, lived the life that you have. It's literally a dueling scar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, that's very cool. Of course it's cool. But wrong. Yes. wrong. Wrong. Very, very wrong. Very, very wrong. wrong about it. All right. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. So when you were interviewing me, we got into a conversation that I really enjoyed um, where we were talking about some of the sword fighting that we'd seen on television and film and the yeah. stuff that impressed us and the stuff that didn't impress us. And afterwards, I found myself wondering, what is the best sword fighting you've ever seen? Was it in real life? Was it on camera? Was it in your head? So I thought I would like to ask you the story of that, if there is something that comes to your mind. Um, okay. Some sword fights are done well on screen. Yes. Right? Um, the So far, the... Okay. Some of the, like, the really stylized Chinese stuff, like in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, mm-hmm. that sort of movie, that's an art form of its own. It doesn't look like a real sword fight necessarily, no, but it's no, it extremely... I mean, these are like extremely highly trained performers yeah. doing art at an extraordinary level. Yeah. And it looks amazing and it's wonderful, but it, it it's not really a sword fight. No. Um, and, you know, we have sort of similar examples in from other sort of movie franchises and what have you. And generally speaking, in most sort of Western movies, the closer it is to sport fencing, the more accurate it's likely to be because that is the yes. primary training of most of the fight directors. Of course. Okay. That makes all the sense. So, for example, the small sword duel at the beginning of The Duelists, Ridley Scott's The Duelists. Yes. Epic. And all the fights in that movie are fantastic because that's Napoleonic era. Mm-hmm. Small swords and sabres are reasonably close to what people like Bill Hobbs, who was the fight director of that, actually know. Yeah. Um, I have seen some absolutely stunningly good sword fighting in various disciplines. In, for example, demonstrations done by historical fencing groups. Right. Right. And often it's not scripted. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's um, so it's not choreographed. Yeah. What it is, is they will have agreed an end point and okay. they'll have agreed a start point and they'll start with the agreed start and then they will just fence with the sort of, you know, keeping things in the pocket, as it were, so they're not going to accidentally hit each other. And then they will devolve to the, you know, one of them will give a signal and then they will go into the sort of end move and they'll kill. Right? That's a very interesting way to do it. Yeah. Actually, I was chatting with Ben Crystal about this on mm. the podcast last year, and uh, we s- we sort of felt that that's probably how they used to do it in Shakespearean times. Rather than choreographing the whole thing. Yeah, because they didn't have time to choreograph. I mean, they, they barely rehearsed. Yes. Yes, right? that's true. So they can't have done fight choreography. They, ca- they can't. Yet, can they? They, you know, like the I Princess Bride that. fight, yeah. if you read As You Wish. I did, Carrie I did. Yeah. I mean, so much rehearsal, so much. I mean, training like, and rehearsal. They trained and trained and trained for hours and hours and hours and hours, yeah. spread out over weeks and weeks and weeks to get that fight as good as it was. And yes. it totally pays off. It's a totally awesome yes. fight. It is not, by any stretch of the imagination, realistic. No. It's just awesome. Yeah. It has the same sort of awesomeness as, like, House of Flying Daggers fights or... Yeah. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon fights. It's 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 art. Um, but no, you're right. Of course, originally, there wouldn't yeah. have been anywhere near the time to put choreography together. 
Yeah, and and I'll say, I mean, I've been in some absolutely epic sword fights. It's like the one that just immediately leaps to mind, not least because I'm interviewing him in a couple of weeks, um, was in 2006 with Christian Tobler. First time we ever fenced each other. Uh-huh. Christian Tobler, for the absolute newbies out there, he's like the godfather of German uh, medieval martial arts. Right. Because his book that came out in 2002 called Secrets of German Longsword was the first English language um, source of medieval German longsword material available to the English-speaking community. Right. And it's a... Yeah. I mean, obviously, 20 years ago, so the the, the interpretation and academic stuff has moved on in, with 20 years of development. But yeah. still, as a resource, oh, my God, he's like, he's like the reason most people who do longsword in the English-speaking world are doing German longsword, not Italian. Okay, right. right. Anyway, so I was fencing him. That sounds we were, quite we were, pressurizing. That sounds quite a scary. No, well, no. Well, what do you mean? No, well, well, he was he was there at this event. Um, it was in Dallas in two thousand six, and we were like, oh, we should go fence each other. And so we we found a quiet spot because um, it was done in this kind of sports venue, and they had these squash courts. So we just mm-hmm. went to one of the squash courts and closed the door and started fencing each other, and it was. Gorgeous. It was just like oh. it was like a it was like a conversation and an earnest discussion. I understand between that old idea. friends. It was yeah. yeah, it was it was absolutely fantastic. And um, you know, we were, I don't know, ten hits into it, and then we realized that there was just like a crowd of people watching through the glass doors. Like Guy and Christian <laughs> fighting. Oh my god. <laughs> Did it matter to you who won, or does no one win in these situations? Oh, well, really? okay. Um, when I got home and I told some of my students about it, one of them said, who won? And I was baffled by the question. Like, just, uh, so I thought about it for a minute. I was like, we did? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's collaborative, I guess, a little bit like BDSM. Yeah. It's actually, it might look like one person gets the better of the situation, but actually it's a collaboration. And, you know, I, I certainly had bruises from it and so did he. And so like I mean, everyone wins, like in yeah. conversation. Yeah. And, and it was, I don't remember who got the first hit or the last. Does it make you sad that obviously like everything I do in my field is recorded, everything. And yeah. I guess a lot of the stuff in yours is not recorded. Does does that make you sad ever? Because you don't have a record of what happened, only in your mind. No, it doesn't make me sad because, I mean, actually one person videoed it without uh-huh. asking us mm-hmm. and I told them to delete the video and they did. Right, right. Right, because it was done without permission. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I... I'm not a fan of recording everything. I'm really not. Because that's why our Twitter profiles are so different from each other. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's fair. Um, also, I am never naked on my Twitter profile. No, I, that's what I've noticed. <laughs> Sorry. Can't think um, of why. <laughs> um, but but the the like, like like for example, I teach this class like yes three mornings a week, my train along things. And I recorded a bunch of them for my solo training course. Yes, on. yes, yes. 
And every now and then, when we're covering something that I want a recording of, yeah. specifically, yeah. I'll hit the record button. But generally, it's it's like um, it's like the difference between going to a live gig and listening to recorded music. Yes, I totally understand yeah. that. Yeah, and yeah, people usually record live gigs these days, and but they don't record all of them. And it might not be the best way to experience it, for sure. Right, and and the thing is, you know, I've been doing this a really long time. If every fight I ever had was recorded, I would have terabytes of video files. Yeah, which I would then have to somehow organise and whatever. And I just, but. It's, it's funny you say that because what that brings to mind mm. is like one of the ways that I can track what I've done is to look at what I've published. Yes, of course. Right. So yeah. what happened in 2018? Now oh, these two books came out. What happened in 2019? This book came out. And, and you know, so when looking back, I can go, well, I definitely did something that year because here's a book. Yes. Right. Or here's an online course. Or usually it's a book. And that serves a sort of similar this is where I've been function. Yes, but like some individual things that you've done that you've loved, they live in your memory rather than... Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, yes. and, and... Well, yeah, I have kids, and so I have an infinite number of pictures of my children when they were little, and some yeah. of them are just appallingly cute. Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of them over the last 15 years. And... Yeah, I don't spend much time looking at pictures of the children when they were little. I mean, it's a guaranteed kind of, oh, aren't they lovely sort of moment. Um, but right now, the children are lovely. Yes, yes. And, and we're actually in the process of actually like doing things and you know, doing things together. Like I, I mentioned before we started recording, um, I took my daughter for a flying lesson for her birthday. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I've got a couple of pictures of that. I didn't record the whole thing. No, no, because it does take, I mean, obviously it does take you out of the moment. Right. And it's just, it's interesting to see that our different attitudes to how much we record of our lives has, it's reflected in our jobs because a lot of what you achieve is in real life. It's live, isn't it? It's, it's, it's teaching and you, you have memory, it lives in your memory and it lives in your students, but you don't have recordings of all of it. Yeah. But then we have, then I have like, books and what have you, which are based on what I've learned doing those things. Yes. So we have like the edited highlights sort of recreated for the purposes of expressing a particular idea. Yes. Yeah. Which makes um, all the sense in the world. Um, and so it's kind of, it's a lovely thing to hear that actually the best sword fighting you could recollect was something you were in and you don't have a record of it. It's like, but it lives in your mind yeah. and like that's that's awesome so like i was very interested when we talked before about how your career kind of emerged i was very interested in your story about your phd um mm-hmm. and what you were writing and i i wondered if there was a sort of a particular point at which you realized that this is something you could do for an actual full-time job because it sounds like it might have emerged for you quite slowly, that realisation. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, there, there's a story to that. I um, hope there it, would be. Tell me. <laughs> okay. Um, I have to edit it slightly because 
many of the people involved are still alive. Okay. Um, but in my sort of usual sort of angsty, stressy way, I was, <laughs> I was, I was living in Edinburgh and it, things got to a point where I thought I was going to either stay in Edinburgh yep. and have no children mm-hmm. or move to America with somebody else and have kids. Okay. Right? And I did not know what to do. Mm-hmm. Right? I was conflicted in all sorts of ways. And so I thought, well, hang on. I'm a martial artist. Right? And at this point, I was um, self-employed as a cabinet maker in Edinburgh, doing some antique restoration jobs mostly, making no money at all, and not particularly happy in it. Right. Um, and I was teaching at the Dawn Julius Society on Wednesdays and we'd usually get together on Sundays as well and do bish bash bosh and that's kind of like the highlight of my week uh-huh yeah right um, and I've been doing this uh, sort of shamanic meditation training with um, this person who was actually the person that I might move to America with okay it all gets very tricky um <laughs> Because you were young, right? And that's what happens when you're young. Uh, I wasn't that young. I was 27 at that <laughs> that's point, still 26. Young. Fine, that's still young. Um, Fine. And, and so I thought, well, what the hell do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, martial artists. When most, in, in most sort of martial arts origin stories, there is the bloke goes out into the wilderness usually goes up a mountain, sits on top of a mountain and meditates and then the way becomes clear. Okay. Right? And like Musashi, probably apocryphally, famously wrote his book of five rings in a cave in a mountain. I may be misremembering, but there's certainly stories like that throughout the martial arts canon. I'm hoping this is going to lead to you going up Arthur's Seat. Is that what it's called? No, no, Arthur's Seat. Arthur's Seat is... is, There's a bit of Arthur's Seat later, but that's that's, (laughs) (laughs) that's later. So, so... I, I said to my friend Paul, I am going, I need to go up into the highlands to meditate. And he was like, oh, okay. And so we got in the car and we went up to, because um, he came from a village called Glenuig near Fort William. Okay. And so we went there and there was a handy mountain next to the village, not a very big mountain, and parked at the bottom, set up the tent. And I walked up the top of the hill and I sat on the hill. And literally within seconds, um, if I have a talent for anything, it is altered states of consciousness. I can flip in and out of them really easily. Oh, wonderful. You really so, should do my job. That's very helpful in my life. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. I've talked to my wife about that. I'm not sure she'd approve. Um, so anyway, so I get into the state. So it's just there. Close your eyes and it's there. And this voice, absolutely clearly, in my head said... Go to Helsinki and open a school of swordsmanship. Oh my goodness! But that's so specific. Right, it was absolutely specific. Amazing. It could not have been clearer. Right. Wow. So, so I literally had not considered teaching swordsmanship for a living beforehand. That is quite a moment. It had not occurred to me that this was something that I could do, like full time professionally. I mean, I taught like individual lessons, you know, for like ten quid an hour or something. Yeah. Through the DDS, well, yeah, I'd, I'd made a bit of money here and there, but like nothing like a living wage. Um, and so it, I, it had not occurred to me that you could do, you could teach historical swordsmanship for a living at all. 
right? Until the voice said, go do that. So I came down the hill and Paul's like, that's quick. And I was like, I'm going to go to Helsinki and open a school of swordsmanship. He went, all right. And then we sort of, you know, stayed the night in Glenuke and then back to Edinburgh and... So that is, that? like, I, I didn't expect you to have, like, such a clear <laughs> yeah, moment and it was instantaneous. It was, That's it was, remarkable. And why, Hel- I mean, did you have any connection to Helsinki at this point? Oh, yeah, I'd done a, uh, okay, my, uh, when I was at university, I did a year out, sorry, exchange year. So my third year at university, I, would, I did that in Helsinki. And that's where I'd met my oh, girlfriend who I was living okay. in Edinburgh with. Okay, so it wasn't completely just... No, no, so the Helsinki bit... Place. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't somewhere I'd never been or heard of. Um, and it also, just so happened, my three best friends in Helsinki at the time, because, you know, because my girlfriend was finished, we'd go back and forth fairly regularly. Right. Um, best martial artist I'd ever met. Um, best sword maker I'd ever met. And best shooter I'd ever met. Okay. Right? So I figured... Well, okay, the school may succeed or fail, but while I'm there, I'm going to learn a bunch of martial arts, hang out with at least one really high-level sword person in the making side, not the doing side, but still, um, and learn to shoot. So worst-case scenario, I pick up a bunch of cool skills and have an interesting time. Yes, yes. Right? Oh, and I'd lose the money that I borrowed to sure. start the school. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's money comes, money goes, and... You know, I'm in the extraordinary lucky position that um, my parents and my siblings and my cousins and what have you, they will not let me starve. And we have like, like state, like dole and yep, yeah, unemployment. Like, yeah. There are all sorts of safety nets in place there are, yes. for everyone in the UK and in Finland. And yes, those safety nets aren't great in in many cases for many people, but also on top of that, um, my extended family is, you know, we have resources. So there must have been moments since you, since that revelation, there must have been moments when you wondered if it was the right thing to be doing or, oh, that's fabulous then. So you found exactly the right thing to be doing basically. Yeah, Yeah. It was, it was like flicking a switch. And, and like I, so that it was in August, 2000, that I went up the mountain and March 17th, 2001 is when I opened the school, right? We, we drove, took the car and drove to Newcastle to put it on the ferry to Gothenburg, drove from Gothenburg to Sweden, um, to the car on the ferry from Sweden to Helsinki and arrived in Helsinki on the Thursday. It's like a three or four day trip. And maybe three nights two nights I think can't remember anyway um, so then so we arrived in Helsinki on the Thursday and through my girlfriend and through other friends we'd already found a couple of places to run classes okay. one of them was in a in a little kind of like a not sure even sure what they use it for it's sort of like a small sports room in the uh, Olympic Stadium in Helsinki and that's where we had the first class uh, freezing like snow on the ground and everything March in Helsinki and uh, the room would comfortably fit a class for about 10 people mm-hmm. 
and about six or seven people had emailed me telling me they were interested and you know, they were going to come. And about 70 people showed up. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Yeah. What did you do with them? Oh, well, instead of, instead of teaching a class, um, I did a, a, a sort of demo of things for about half the time. And I said, well, look, there are way more people present. So then we did a bunch of like mechanics and footworky stuff. Um, and I sort of arranged, if I remember rightly, I arranged things so that people could at least pick up and have a feel of the sorts. Yeah. Um, but it's great. I had this enormous two-handed sword because, of course, I was absolutely terrified. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, way too many people. So yeah, what I was planning to do couldn't happen. No. And this is super important. If I fuck this up, yeah. like, the dream dies. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, but the thing is, if you're holding a five-foot-long sword, it's like a... It's like a um, Security blanket? Yeah. Yeah, I understand bear. that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because actually it's a bit more practical than a teddy bear. Yes. So, <laughs> so I just picked up this sword and I sort of stood there and just waited and they always went quiet. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is going to work. And I just started talking. And I haven't like, stopped talking since. <laughs> this is like, this is a lovely, lovely, lovely start. But what a, what a strange, like, sudden beginning obviously all the yeah. training that you've done up to that point was leading right. up to it but the sort of epiphany of that's what you needed to do yeah Love and, it. and i had you know i thought i had you know option a option b mm. and what was presented to me was like option x yes yeah and it was the right one like yeah fabulous. absolutely no question it was the right one so it's the one thing where all of the things I do are mm. useful, right? Yeah. And on the various aspects of my nature, like I can't help but explain stuff. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, yeah. It's it like annoys my life. children yeah. no end. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but you're very helpful for what yeah. you've gone into. I, I, and even, even you know, stuff like, you know, the woodworking things. Well, you know, when you rent a sow there's a bunch of stuff to do to kind of make it look like a training facility. Yeah. Like building sword racks. Uh, that stuff was all easy. Yeah. Um, I mean, just all sorts of things just sort of came together. It's like, well, this is obviously what I need to be doing. That is fantastic. And so this led on to you eventually um, writing books, yeah. which is what I want to talk about next, because okay. I know we've both written books, um, but you've written more than me, and they're published and everything. And you've 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 self-published, you've traditionally published, and so you've got a great deal more experience than me. And I'd love to hear about your process. How do you go about writing a book? How many times have you done this? How many books have you actually got? Uh, it sort of depends how you count. Okay. Um, so, like some of some books which are technically separate volumes and published as separate volumes on various you know book buying websites are also compiled into bigger books with extra stuff. So, for example, um, I have a series called The Swordsman's Quick Guide. Mm -hmm. And the seven volumes of The Swordsman's Quick Guide make up about half of my book, The Theory and Practice of Historical Martial Arts. Okay. 
right? So just taking like what I consider basically stuff that I've bothered to get myself a hardback copy of. Yes. Um, I think there's 11. Okay, so that's a lot, which means that presumably you have figured out a process that works for you in yeah. the process of doing this. So please tell me about your process. How do you do this? Um, okay, well, firstly, I... These days, I do set out to write a book. But that's a terrible place for most people to start unless you've done it a few times mm -hmm. because a book is big and mm -hmm. complicated and it's very difficult to hold it in your head at once. Yes. Okay? So what I tend to do is I set out to write a chapter mm -hmm. or an outline yeah. or a list of chapter headings or a paragraph and, you know, quite often it'll be like, oh, hang on, I've covered this already. And some student has sent me a question some years ago and I've written a blog post because you know, when an email question is sufficiently interesting and requires a sufficiently in-depth answer and I actually want to do it, yep. then I write a blog post and stick that up. Yep. And you know, the person who sent me the question is happy because they get a really good answer and it's also useful for other people. Yes. So... Sometimes I can just take stuff I've already written and sort of copy and paste it in and then edit it into sort of more bookish format yeah. and connect it to the other pieces. Um, sometimes, you know, if I'm stuck, I will conjure up an imaginary student and teach them the thing, like I'm writing them an email. Yeah. Um, it's... The thing is... I don't have just one process. It kind of varies from book to book because they're all different. And I guess your reasons for writing them are, are different. different each yeah. time. Well, like, like okay, for, for the theory and practice of historical martial arts, I actually set out to do a kind of a complete overview of the processes involved mm -hmm. in going from here's this old book to I can fight with a sword. So this is like a pretty massive project to get all of that. Yeah, together. yeah. It it took it took a long time. And for me, the hardest part was structuring it, right? And because getting all those many many pieces in place, because of course when you actually do the thing, you yeah. don't do all the research and no. then do all the physical preparation and then do all the physical interpretation and then all the testing of that no. and then you're done. That's not how it works. You you get to a bit of the research and go, oh, that's cool, I'm going to try this out. And then you realise that actually you can't try that out because your hips aren't flexible enough so you work on that for a little bit while you do the next bit of research and then you get this technique and isn't that cool and then you test that against this and then you have this whole bunch of techniques which you've sort of figured out but do they actually fit together as a system? Not sure yet. Okay, so you go back to the book and it's just this... It's this endless sort of kaleidoscopic cycling of things. Yes. Right. And structuring this so that someone how, can actually... Yeah. How do you unpin it and put it into this sort of fixed mechanical order that you get in a book? Yes, yes. Um, that was hard. But other books, my Advanced Longsword, for example, it was hard until I realized that actually we, it, we have the advanced longsword syllabus encapsulated in a form called the syllabus form, right? And so I took each step of the form and expanded it into a chapter of the book. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Right? Well, how nice to have your structure kind of 
Right. Or I mean, I, I, I wrote the book in about five weeks because that's as fast as I could type it. Mm-hmm. Right. It was easy. So Once can, I figured out the structure. Yes. So I guess because you've got this, this career that involves multiple aspects, you can't ever stop doing everything else in order to just write, can you? Yeah, that would be a disaster. <laughs> because after a week, my forearms would swell up and with tendonitis and my back would hurt too much and it would just oh. be a disaster. So you see, I'd love to, I'd love to be able to go, you hear about authors booking a cottage by the sea and going into... Oh, God, yeah. But right, and that appeals to me massively, so that actually wouldn't work for you. Well, that tends to work for fiction writers. Mm-hmm. who kind of need to separate themselves, well, some of them need to separate themselves from the real world because they need to immerse themselves completely in the fictional world they're creating. Yes, right? and, and that's the real obviously world not what you want to do. It's not what you need to do. No. Um, um, but it's, it's funny. I mean, the single biggest barrier to me getting the next book done is email. Yeah, <laughs> just because there's so much of it, right? Right, yeah, and and so and so I have some I have some rules in place for that, um, which I find helpful. Um, but the yeah, I I sometimes dream about like a week away to just immerse myself in the book. And well, yeah, yeah, it would be nice. But we both know that if I had a week away, I probably wouldn't get any work done at all. Okay, <laughs> so- I would probably spend it like. If there was no internet connection, I might get some work Yeah, done. I think that might be the actual, the critical part of it. <laughs> but, um, but really, yeah. It's, like, yeah. I, I find myself, I find myself very curious um, mm-hmm. because your job involves these sort of multiple um, activities. I'd, I'd like to know what is a, what's a typical day? What does a typical day look like for you? Um, okay. It sort of depends. A typical week is probably better than a typical day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because because I have sort of different days for different things. Like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm teaching my, I guess, I'm, I'm not really teaching a class, but in my head, I'm teaching a class, which means it's absolutely sacrosanct. Nothing gets in the way. Yes. Right? Yes. So I'm, I'm doing my sort of physical, necessary physical training stuff, um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I should do it more often. But this I can... I can square away. So right? everything else fits around those fixed points then? Um, yeah, pretty much. Okay. And then Thursdays, I generally speaking, I have no nothing in my calendar on Thursdays at all. Uh-huh. Right? And I'll get on Thursdays and I will do whatever. Usually that involves actually really productive work on a on one of the bigger projects so if you were writing a book at that point would that happen on a thursday do you think that yeah most a a lot of the stuff that requires i mean a lot of the book is just getting the stuff in your head and typing it out and that's just typing it's not really it's not the thing that's just that's just the bit that looks like writing Mm -hmm. right the real stuff is when you're figuring it out yes right that's the really hard bit and so that will often happen on a Thursday, but also if I'm, I'm you know, currently building a display cabinet for my beautiful old fencing treatises, and that also counts as a major project because I don't really distinguish between projects as to whether they are work or not work. Like like 
money-making stuff or not money-making stuff. Oh, that's it's, probably very healthy of you. I do, and right. yeah, I don't think it's very good. Um, and yeah, because that also frees me up to do projects that aren't going to make any money but are worthwhile, like podcasts, for example. Yes. So yes. far, the podcast is net negative. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But it's okay, it doesn't yes. matter, because it, no. it's, it's been hugely positive in all sorts of other ways. Yes. Okay. So, unfortunately, the other projects, like online courses and books, make enough money that it doesn't actually matter that the podcast costs money. So do podcasts tend to happen on Thursdays as well? No, no, no. No, no I stay the uh, hell away from the podcast on Thursdays. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, because, okay, so like on, um, because, because it's, the podcast... What I do with it is the, I find the people to interview, I interview them, I do the editing on that, and everything apart from the interview itself is tactical. Okay? It is, it is a, a small action that needs to be done so this larger thing can occur. Okay? It's not... It, Fundamentally, the only bit I need to, to do is, that needs to be me doing it, is the interview. And to some extent, I, I think it's a bit of a dick move to get like assistance to contact potential guests and stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, it's yeah. rude. I, yeah. I do that myself because it's the right thing to do. But really, in terms of like the technical skills required, that could be done by somebody else, Right. But so, there's a tension, isn't there, between like doing yeah. things the way you want and the most yeah. ethical way and, and being efficient. So, yeah, I understand. Yeah. 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 So, like, on Mondays, I do my class and then you know, breakfast and stuff. And then um, I have, like, an hour or so, which I normally do either a bit of writing or emaily stuff, sort of businessy stuff. Uh, then I usually go climbing at lunchtime oh. um, with my friends, Katie and Ross. Oh. Because... Social interaction and different physical exercise, it's just, it hits all sorts of, all sorts of, you know, That's positive lovely. points. Yeah. Yeah. Like indoor climbing, it's a bowl. Yeah. Um, and then Monday afternoons, usually afternoons are a bit useless for me because I'm usually tired by that point. So is that when you do email quite often? Because. Uh, sometimes email, sometimes have a nap. I'm a big fan <laughs> of naps. <laughs> and then, and then. Then I'm usually like cooking dinner in the evening from like five to six, and then we have dinner early-ish, and then it's like sort of family time and hangout time or whatever, and I don't usually work in the evenings if I can avoid it. So it doesn't sound like, where does um, sort of your own personal training fit into that? Oh, I do that, I do that Monday, Wednesday, Friday in those one-hour slots, but I also do it when I feel like it in any other slot. Right. Um, to be- I don't know at this point how important it is that you should carry on sort of training by yourself, like increasing your skill level. I don't know if you've got to a point where you've kind of plateaued anyway. Um, right now, I'm not working on my skill level in terms of weapons manipulation and stuff. I'm maintaining it as it, where it is. So I'm doing the necessary maintenance to keep it where it needs to be. I'm more concerned at this stage with the effects of aging so I'm 48 and so I'm more concerned with things like hip flexibility and strength and keeping my forearms in good condition and all that sort of stuff so that's where I spend most of my training time because um, the limiting factor on what I want to do at the moment is not weapon skill 
like it's what might be happening to your body as it ages. Right. Um, so, yeah, but as there will come a point where if I neglect weapon stuff for too long, it will start to slip and maybe not be sufficient for what I need to be able to do, mm-hmm. which is give a like proper professional level individual class. That's the, the most technically difficult thing of all in terms of like using a sword is giving a professional level individual lesson. Right. Right. Because what you have to do is uh, you have to adjust the level of uh, intensity so the student is working at their optimal rate of failure. Yeah. But you also have to be paying attention to what they're doing. So if they do the thing they're supposed to do, they hit you and don't get hit. And if they do the wrong thing, they don't hit you and get hit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which is a super hard thing to do at speed with a yes. really high level student. Yes. Right? Yes. So that's that's the that's the skill level I need with my weapons. Yes. Right. And does teaching to some extent at least keep you at that level technically? Um well during lockdown and stuff, I've taught hardly any classes. So oh. no, I've had to that's one of the reasons why I invented my train along sessions. Right. Yes. Um, to make you yeah, although I, because the train-alongs are done in my study, there's not a lot of room for weapon no. stuff. The weapon stuff no, no. mostly happens outside, and so it happens less often than perhaps it should. Sure, no, I understand um, that. But, you know, um, yeah, so then like Tuesdays, normally Tuesday morning is podcast stuff, so mm-hmm. editing, um, so basically getting the draft of next week's ready to send to the person so they can check it if they want to, mm-hmm. to the guest. Um, making sure that um, this week's is ready to go. And, of course, uh, Katie will be doing the transcriptions on this week's episode because she gets sent it at the same time as the, as the guest. So she's got, like, right. 10 days or so to get okay. the transcription and whatever done before we launch on Friday. And so I try and get everything for... Um, this week's podcast done Tuesday morning and then um, Katie does the show notes and the whatever else and then for the rest of Tuesday I'm possibly writing a book possibly reading a book there's lots of research and stuff quite often in my shed doing woodworky stuff um, but actually also the woodworky stuff is when I listen to podcasts the most and the podcasts I find most useful for my sort of strategic goals um, they tend to be fairly technical mm. and so I I have them on when I'm doing doing woodwork or what have you I can't have them on when I'm doing anything involving writing or emails yeah, or but it's language right yeah. um, and they're completely useless to train to <laughs> like, yes. they don't have yeah. the same kind of you know get the motor running feeling no. as listening to the eye of the tiger when doing sword forms for no, example totally <laughs> totally <laughs> Um, I like. I love it that your your woodwork sounds like my sewing, and exactly when I'm doing dressmaking, right. I'm listening to my podcasts. Exactly, right. it's like it frees up that part of your brain, yeah. and you can do those two activities. Um, yeah. yeah, in a very kind of nice, comfortable yeah. way together. Yeah. Um, and then Tuesday afternoons is when the weather allows, and it may not allow today. It's looking very overcast. Flying lesson, ideally. Um, then Wednesday morning is a bit like Monday morning mm-hmm. um, 
I mean, I don't go climbing, but I have usually Wednesday afternoons. I have a meeting with the guy who does my Facebook ads for me. Right. That's just a short one. And I have a long standing sort of hour long chat with an old friend. Um, pretty much every week we would do it. Over, over you've done a great job of um, prioritizing stuff to make you happy, to kind of pour happiness well, into you, to yeah, recharge your batteries. I mean, the, the thing is, like for most people, I think the biggest challenge of the pandemic has been mental health. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, thanks to medical stuff and vaccines and all that sort of thing. Most people are not in mortal danger. No. Um, which is fabulous. But there are all sorts of, you know, worries and stresses and strains. And also for a lot of people, I mean, we've been super lucky that I happen to have stuff that people want to buy during a pandemic, like online courses and books. Yes, thank and God. So, I mean, well so done for setting ha- things up that way. I, I can't take any credit for it. That was luck. I didn't deliberately build my business to be pandemic proof. It just happened to turn no, out. No, but you did diversify enough that as it happened, it was somewhat yeah. pandemic proof. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is and, very good. And wherever possible, I prioritize passive income producing yes. stuff. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm the pretty much the sole breadwinner in the family, mm-hmm. and my children's you know, quality of well, standard of living depends on my income and yes. so I can't fuck around with it actually Which that was another kind of mm-hmm. a moment it must have been 10 years ago mm-hmm. something like that where like in the build up to me going up the hill and finding out I should be yeah. in Helsinki teaching swords I'd had a, a run of nightmares like for weeks I wake up with nightmares every night Nothing, not, not any specific nightmare I can remember but it was just Nightmares, right? And as soon as I'd made the decision to go to Helsinki School, nightmares stopped. Oh, so obviously it was my subconscious basically yeah. hammering on the back of my head going, Guy, you need to be paying attention to something. Yeah, we need to. And this is how, yeah, yeah, this is how we're choosing to tell you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I had, you know, everyone gets nightmares occasionally, but this was like night after night. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the same thing happened the same sort of series of lots and lots and lots and lots of broken night sleep from nightmares for several weeks. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Because I recognized it from the previous yes. time. Yes. Which was all more than 10 years before, but it was like, okay, this is the same thing. And so what is it that needs what, to change? What needs to change? Yeah. And what I figured out was I'd let my sort of artistic disdain for money and... You know, which of course is one can afford that when one comes yeah. from a comfortable middle class background and you know your children won't starve because Absolutely. your siblings are making plenty of money and yeah. they're nice people and so would you know not let the children starve sure right yeah right so you know I recognize it for what it is but it was like oh you know I don't really care about that I wasn't really paying attention to the money and I realized like for example my weekend seminar fee, I'd set it in 2001 at 1,000 euros for the weekend, mm-hmm. plus travel expenses and what have you. It was still 1,000 euros for the weekend 10 years later. So it was effectively about 700. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> when you allow, you know, 
cumulative inflation, all that sort of stuff. Even though I was getting much better at my job during that time. Of course. It was nuts. It was absolutely insane. So I realized I was not basically taking care of business and my children's standard of living was going to suffer because of it. Right. And that was an untenable position because it basically put my sort of ideas of how you're supposed to be as an artistic person, martial artist in this case, um, against my idea of how you're supposed to be as a parent, where you put the children first. Yeah. Right? And that was causing the stress that was causing the nightmares. Mm -hmm. Right? So I thought, right, okay, what am I going to do? And so I put my prices up for a start. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And then I thought, well, hang on, you know, books and writing and stuff. Maybe I should do this, maybe I should do that. And I just started to put together, like, well, lots of things came together at the same time. So it's hard to say what came first and how it all yeah. worked. Um, but, but you did start to diversify. I started, self-publish- yeah, I started self-publishing as well mm-hmm. as traditional publishing. Um, I did some crowdfunding for various projects. that started around that time. I forget exactly when. Um, but the upshot was that like in 2016, I was, well, in 2015, we had enough money coming in from my books that we could move to the UK. So we were not dependent on me showing up and teaching. Yes. Um, and then 2016, hallelujah, thanks to Joanna Penn, who is fantastic. Um, I started doing online courses mm-hmm. and oh my God. They are so much, so much more lucrative than books. Okay. Oh, what a lovely discovery to make. Because I guess you didn't right. know that when you started. I had no idea. No. I had no idea. Um, but yeah, they for producing an online course is much faster than writing a book. Right. And costs less. Right. And makes way more money. Wow. Right. I mean, I'm still producing books because you know the books are a necessary part of me figuring out the whole historical martial arts thing. Absolutely, um, yeah. And there are, you know, some students need books and other students need online courses because people learn differently. Yes. But, yeah, I mean, they were, they've been fantastically helpful in, in basically funding, funding my mental health through the pandemic. Yes, and I'm glad that it has meant that when you describe your working week to me, there's quite a lot in that kind of working week that isn't work, which just seems really healthy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but then... Um, I think it's a really a really common mistake that people make when they're looking at somebody who's writing books or doing that sort of thing is they confuse typing for writing, right? And you know, time spent reading a book is just as useful as time spent typing out your own. Yeah, and I often yeah. think actually the writing I'm doing it happens really when I'm walking because that's why exactly. I'm walking through the yeah. So I yeah, I understand that. So, but you have set up your life so that you're not under this ridiculous pressure to be constantly exactly doing stuff that generates money now, and that just yeah. sounds like a. It sounds like you've just balanced things very well at this point. I'm sure it's been a problem well, to get. To <laughs> yeah, well, I, I tried, um, and, and yeah, like I have a. a like a fundamental rule that if a friend needs to talk to me, then that takes priority over anything other than my wife or children needing to talk to me. 
Yeah. Right? So I actually have four or five regular or semi-regular meetups with friends over the, you know, over the course of a given month. There'll be probably 10 or 15 of these. Really good. Right? Yeah. It's where we basically sit and hang out and chat. It's over Zoom because, you know, these are people in, like, Oregon and sure. Wisconsin and Melbourne, Australia. And, you know, they're all over the place. Um, and normally, in normal times, I would travel a lot and I would see them then. And now yes. we're, we're doing this actually much more regularly over Zoom and what have you. Yeah, it's, um, that's been something that's happened, isn't it, that, that we yeah. do. We do it more regularly. It's maybe not quite as powerful, but you do it more. And it's, yeah. Right. And and it's vastly better than nothing. And oh, it also God, means yeah. that when when stuff happens, like when a bad thing happens, there'll be somebody, you know, I'll talk about it with my wife, possibly not with the children, depends on what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I will have, I. It's it's not a stretch to just, meet up with somebody else no. you know, to, because they're these regularly scheduled uh, yeah. and sometimes we just go online and play a board game or something on on the internet and chit chat and sometimes we have like deep conversations about meaningful stuff and sometimes not really much happens yeah like friendship is magic isn't right, it really exactly yeah um do you manage to take weekends off work because i think maybe um Usually when I'm teaching a seminar, it's at the weekend. Yes. But other than that, that, again, because most of what I do, I don't file in my head under work unless it's a useful thing to do to get it done. Yep. Um, Then, you know, I'll sometimes do a bit of work at the weekends, like answer a few emails or, you know, if if I'm deep into writing a book, I may very well be up early because the book will wake me up and I'll just go downstairs and I'll put a thousand words into it and then yeah. one of the kids wiggles down and puts the TV on and that's like oh, okay yeah fine I'll go and get some coffee now right or take my wife a cup of tea or something yeah. so there's there's that it, because I don't really have these very strict distinctions between work and not work yeah that's a very interesting I don't think I've met someone who's kind of described things that way before and that's an interesting it's an interesting difference from the way a lot of us approach things well i have a pretty clear idea of um my sort of long-term strategic goals yes right and to accomplish those i have to be mentally and physically fit to do the necessary things yes and so in my head like you know a while ago i needed to go see a therapist for like emotional childhood stuff Mm -hmm. and so i did and that I did that in the middle of the working day because that's convenient for us both, and it totally counted. Yeah, totally. Because what you could have done is prioritise making another hundred dollars, but actually, in the long term, what's right. going to make you able to carry on doing your job is having decent mental health. Exactly. Certainly. Yeah. And 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 yeah. So so we, <laughs> we're halfway through the week. So we got th- Thursday is like clear, like like Thursday this week. Um, I'm assuming the weather's up for it. I'm going for a nice long walk with a friend. And we may actually work, you know, talk about a bunch of work stuff, or yeah. we may not. Um, but Thursday is the day where you can kind of make it up, what you do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and usually that's the most productive day of the week by a mile. Ah. Right? Because I'm, I don't have to hold any bit of myself 
in reserve for a commitment later in the day. Yes, I entirely understand that. Right? Like it used to be when I was teaching, I used to be teaching Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then sometimes the weekends. And then we dropped one of those for the students took over Fridays, I think. So I was teaching Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, uh, Class started at six o'clock. My whole day was structured around at six o'clock I need to be on my top yeah floor. it's quite right. an inhibiting factor I think quite often yeah so it's not I didn't have those days off no they were not off in any no. meaningful sense because I had to be on and at my maximum capacity at six o'clock so everything leads up to that yeah exactly so on Thursdays there is nothing I need to be awake for so if I completely you know like evacuate my brain in the morning doing like really kind of deep focused intense stuff I just sleep all afternoon that's fine yeah doesn't matter yeah right because yeah. there's not and if I'm like dozy in the evening doesn't matter either you know yeah no good um, to have one of those days and then on Friday yeah. you teach again yeah Fridays I've got the morning session and then there's um, you know some type of like general kind of admin stuff usually maybe some creative stuff in the morning sometimes I'll go climbing um with Ross and Katie sometimes not it kind of depends um afternoon I usually have another one of my friends meetings like three <laughs> right and then you know, Friday evening it's kind of the start of the week. I mean okay both my brother and my sister are very hard working in the kind of classic sense right and they they are just appalled and baffled by how little I appear to work and yet I get lots of stuff done. I mean, yeah. you just just look at my bookshelf. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right? it, it just it sounds like you've just got this kind of holistic approach where everything you do somewhat yeah. keeps you moving forward to where you want to go. I mean, it sounds it sounds very nice, but it's interesting to me, and it leads us on to my next question because clearly mm-hmm. friendship is pretty important to you. That's vital, yeah. Yeah. And I'm assuming a lot of your friends do come from the sword world, although I'm yep. sure not all of them. Yeah. So it made me wonder, sort of, what the what if there is such a thing as the sword fighting community? And absolutely if, there is. And if so, like, what sort of people tend to gravitate towards it? If if you can, if you can sort of describe who they tend to be, I'm assuming men a lot of the time. But uh, well, um. Fundamentally, mm. the sword world is made up of people who are mad about swords. Yes. And there is yes. no other demographic distinction. Really? Really. Oh, they that's can be, great. <laughs> they can be from any culture, from any background, from you know, any profession. You know, pick your demographic point. I, mean, I, I know one of my students is a woman in her mid-60s who started swords last year. Uh-huh. Right? In America. Oh, that's and really interesting. And I, I recently interviewed um, a woman in Jakarta who's Muslim and in her 40s and who started swords in her 40s. And I have students who are, you know, young white men mm-hmm. from wherever and computer programmers and historians and lorry drivers and airline pilots and, like, think of a profession... 
and you'll probably find somebody in that profession who likes swords. I mean, BDSM models also like swords. <laughs> I am. I, at least I some of them that. do. <laughs> at least some of them do. Right. So there is no, there is no distinguishing factor. But the field was founded mm. by and large um, 30 odd years ago by people like me. Yes. Right? We yes. tended to be young white men. With martial university. arts backgrounds, quite not, not necessarily, but at thinking. university. So right. with a sufficiently, shall we say, um, supportive environment that university was an option. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. And so what we tend to see now, 30 years later, is many of the best known figures in the field, because we've been in it the longest, of course. are middle-aged, usually bald, white dudes with university backgrounds. Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. Okay. And that is a very, very small demographic, but it tends to, you know, representation matters, so it yeah. attracts itself. Yeah. Right? So we tend to get lots of young men. Right? Yeah. But there are an abundance of women who are madly into swords. I'm very, like, I'm very happy to hear that. And, and of course, I know, as you've said to me before, that you know you don't feel like you've got to where you want it to be in terms of representation, but it's clearly on its way, even though the people at the top of it, if you just looked at them, you might not be aware of how yeah. far it's come. But then, you know, there are some, there are some people sort of that, who are now... Okay, there's always going to be that kind of founder glow around some of us. Yeah. Right? Which is bullshit because it's just, it's halo effect entirely. Right? Yep. But, but there are now, because this has been going on long enough, we now have people who have a decade plus of um, experience and who are highly respected instructors in their own right, who are not middle-aged straight white dudes. Yes. Right? Yeah, so, so obviously is, this is, will begin to change the culture. It, it has been changing for a while. Yeah. Um, and, you know, actually I had a problem recently. You know, this podcast has a absolutely strict, slightly more than half of the guests yeah. must be female. Yeah. Right? I realised I need to go and interview a few men because I had too many women lined up Aww. in slots. But, like, I mean, I'm, I'm just delighted and fascinated, honestly, that you found enough women, you know, because I wouldn't have expected that because of my experiences in sword fight, um, in stage fight 20 years ago. Yeah. I really wouldn't have expected that. And it was a nice surprise to hear that and from you. 20, 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been. No, no, no. It has, no. It has gotten a lot better. And, yeah, we've got historical martial arts clubs in well, like Jakarta, I yes. just interviewed someone in Jakarta, um, and in you know all sorts of other places in the world, you know, South America and you know Southeast Asia. I've I need to find there must be some historical martial arts clubs in Africa, but I haven't looked hard enough yet. Mm -hmm. um, but we've got so far on the podcast, we've got all the continents except Africa properly represented. Oh. We have African martial arts on the podcast, yes, but we haven't. Um, I haven't actually interviewed someone who is running a historical martial arts club in Africa. So if yeah. you are listening to this in Africa and you're involved in historical martial arts, get in touch. I'd like to get you on the show so we can kind of get all the continents represented. I was wondering, when I was preparing to ask you this question, I was yeah. wondering, are you going to say most of the people are historians 
Or are you going no. to say most of the people have a martial art background? And it sounds like neither of those things are the case. Yeah, I, you know, we don't have like the proper studies, demo, you know, sort of sociological um, no. studies and demographic studies or whatever to be you know really certain of exactly. I mean, some professions are probably overrepresented. I would guess. Like what? I th- in my experience, there's a lot of computer programmers. Oh gosh, how interesting! Like in my world, which is being a photographic model, a lot of my photographers are amateur photographers, and most of them are IT consultants. Right, there, yeah. It's not what I've expected, but that's the case. Yeah, it's fascinating, <laughs> it's fascinating yeah. isn't it? And it makes you wonder why. <laughs> I, th- I think I think because they get paid well, and they so they have time and money for hobbies. Yeah, I, that's, that's probably a fair point. Um, I, and I think maybe, in, in my experience at least, I think that um, people who work as IT consultants, they're often smart and they're computer literate, but what they're not getting to do is use their creativity necessarily much at work. Right. And it just, they need an outlet for it. Um, and I wonder if there's something a little like that going on with all your computer programmers. Yeah, and I, I think anyone in any kind of abstract profession needs you know something physical a uh, non-physical profession yeah 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 so they need something physical and you know i i when i introduced the show it's like hello sword people because that's the demographic yeah no that's that's lovely right? it's, yeah it's lovely it's people who like swords and and know, what it means is i think anyone listening to this who is a sword person but who's never taken any steps to meeting other sword people in real life going to any classes i guess that means they don't need to be afraid that they're not going to walk into a sort of a club where everyone's the same except for them, which is a nice thing to know. Right. Although, you know, some clubs are like that. Oh, yeah. So we we do have a problem with some clubs who very deliberately only recruit certain demographics. Oh. Yes. Oh. Because because there is, just in, in in the same way that the Nazis borrowed a whole bunch of, like Norse mythology and perverted it to their own ends, um, you get, you know, people who obsess about, okay, it is a historical fact that one of the main uses of medieval martial arts skills in, shall we say, the 15th century was to prevent um, Islamic incursions mm-hmm. from the Ottoman Empire yep. into Europe. Right, and so there was a lot of fighting going on between, should we say, Christendom and the Ottoman Empire, right? So has that culture and crusades and things like that, right? And so there's this sort of, um, if you like, a kind of baked-in Islamophobia, right? Into which into like the original sort of knights of old whose martial arts we are copying. I would not but have then, thought of that. Right. Yes, it makes sense. But then it is also true that the founder of Aikido, the sort of way of peace, yeah. sort of, I love Aikido, it's one of my favourite martial arts of all. Um, but by any reasonable standards, at various points in his life, Morihei Yoshiba was a raging nationalist fascist. Right? That's indisputable. So what you're basically telling me <laughs> is that there are clubs like... Miyagi Dojo in Karate Kid and there are clubs like Cobra Kai with the baddies in it. 
<laughs> it's not quite that black and white. Oh um, no, it is. I'm sure it is. No, it really, it really <laughs> isn't. It isn't quite that black and white. But, <laughs> oh. but there are cert- there are certainly there are certainly clubs where if you are I don't know not white and maybe trans, for instance, mm-hmm. you you'd might be better off going it. to this club than that one. And I guess you can point people in the right direction if they are looking to. I mean, as a general rule. If the per if the person who is running the club or involved in the club has been on the podcast, chances are you'll be all right. Right. Oh well, that's nice to know. So I hope anyone who is listening, who's thinking of taking their first step, will kind of be reassured by that. Because to be honest, I would be reassured by that because like, I doubt I'm going to get to go to any of these clubs because I'm too busy. But you know, the idea is really appealing. But then I think, oh, what sort of people would I meet and would I be welcome? And it's nice to hear that actually that might not be an issue. Because um, if it isn't an issue for me, it probably won't be for other people too. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Oh, lovely. All right. So we began to touch. This is my penultimate question. Okay. We began to touch on this already um, in your last answer. But so I feel like it would be fair to describe you as a feminist. Would you describe yourself as a feminist? <laughs> I mean, yes, obviously, um, but there are a million different kinds of feminists. Uh-huh, yes, there are. And I generally avoid labels where possible. That's understandable. Um, and, I don't know, it's, on the one hand, okay, At the moment, the pendulum is still very firmly biased in the direction of patriarchy and male supremacy, right? The world is built for men, yeah. right? Invisible Women by Carolyn Creole Perez. As, as I think we, we certainly discussed we it at did, some point. Yeah, I we forget did, if it was a lunch. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, that's why I started the podcast. It's basically a response to that book. Yes. Right? Yes. So... I think that's true. And I think it is necessary to get the pendulum where it belongs. It is necessary to push it a bit further in the opposite direction. Yes, until it hopefully eventually settles in the middle. Until it settles in a, in a more equitable thing, which is why, you know, you need things like affirmative actions of various kinds. Mm. Right? But at the same time, I'm not in any way anti-male god no no me neither i mean i describe myself as a feminist but it's not because i don't like men at all at all right um well i mean you marry one (laughs) i assume i assume you (laughs) like him quite a lot (laughs) yes yes Um, it's just you've you've clearly you've mentioned multiple times through our conversations the sort of feeling of responsibility trying to sort of redress the balance in a in a traditionally male-dominated field. Yeah. Um, so what my question was really, and you've partially answered it, what does it involve for you, the trying to redress that balance? So obviously representation of women. Right. I mean, the, the main thing that I'm doing now is on this front is the podcast. Mm. But as you noticed, it's not all women. It's no, simply no, no. at least half of the guests are women. Yeah. Right. You mentioned um, before, you mentioned demonstrating stuff in classes yeah. with women, which was an interesting one that 
it hadn't occurred to me. Right. That that yeah, I mean, the person the martial arts instructor demonstrates with is literally set up as an example to the other mm. students. And whatever um, people want, it's helpful for people to see people like themselves in that yes. position, right? Yes. It, it basically shows them that it is possible for them. Right, that's, that's the thing. Um, but the... Honestly, mm. one... Probably the most useful thing is, wherever possible, I just shut up. <laughs> oh, that sounds quite sad. I don't feel like... No, no, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not sad at all. I get plenty of chances to talk. Okay. I am not in any way repressed or... Okay. You know, you know, downtrodden or whatever. I mean, I've got, I talk a lot on this podcast, you may have noticed. And I, you know, I have my books and my courses and my students and my blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and, you your know, voices, it's I get heard available. a lot. Yeah. And, you know, in any, in any historical martial arts setting, whatever, my voice carries more weight than it probably should because of halo effect and, you know, time and role and all that kind of stuff, right? Maybe. I mean, I feel like you've earned that position, but, but yeah. Well, um, so but sort of being aware, I guess, aware of the the power right. and loudness of your voice. Um, yeah. So, so I generally don't weigh in on, you know, like when women say say stuff about you know patriarchal bullshit and what have you. I just keep an eye shut. Yeah. Because yeah. as soon as I start that. to talk. It's either, it's some bloke sticking his nose in, but it really doesn't, it's not needed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so actually, just... <laughs> one of the powerful things you're doing is, is, is something you're not doing, then, in that regard. Um, yeah, I, you know, actions like having a podcast with a, you know, gender quota and what have you, is a, is a hopefully useful thing. Yes. Right? But talk is less so. Right, and if you want to see my politics, mm -hmm. it's probably better to look at what I actually do rather than what I say, because all yes. sorts of people will say all sorts of shit and do nothing. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, um, I've never joined a political party before in my life, but last year, again, thanks to Karen Carlo Perez, um, I joined the Women's Equality Party. Oh. I am a paid-up member of the Women's Equality Party of Great Britain. doesn't mean I'm particularly active in anything. No, no. But it's, you know... But I it think, was a thing you could actually do. Right, because yeah. it's, it's a low-hanging fruit. It's by no means the whole tree. Yeah. But it's a low-hanging fruit. Women are about half the population. Yeah. Right? Get, get that imbalance redressed... And I think all sorts of other imbalances will naturally be redressed in the same process, or at I'd least like we'll have a much so. more solid platform from which to redress them. Yes. Right? But it just makes sense to me to address the low-hanging fruit first. Yes. So the answer, so, the short answer to my question is really, you're doing plenty. Like, that's what you're doing. You're doing plenty of stuff. So on behalf of women, thank you. It's very nice. <laughs> well, you're welcome. It's, not, it's really not very much, but there we go. Well, but because of the field you're in, it's actually, I think it's quite a lot. That's my personal opinion, like that, that it, it means more when you're in a field where women have been quite underrepresented. 
but obviously taking compliments <laughs> is horrific so we'll move <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I'm just I'm just I'm just being quiet and yeah like, <laughs> <been> talking <laughs> okay so this is my last question and I'm very interested in this because when you interviewed me I talked about how my stage fight training for a while especially gave me this ridiculous false confidence that I could probably yeah. fight anyone um, and I'm embarrassed admitting to it, especially when you said that you avoid, avoid fights at basically all costs, <laughs> even though you're far better qualified than me to get into them. So I found myself, after my interview with you, I found myself wondering what the real world applications are that you found for your knowledge and training. In what way, in what ways do you think this has changed you as a person? Okay. Fundamentally, I see all problems in terms of, in swordsmanship terms, right? Tell me what that means. So, well, let's take a recent example. Mm -hmm. Pandemic hit, suddenly we're in lockdown. This is a massive problem that is totally unrelated to somebody swinging a sword at your head. It is. Right, at least least on paper, unrelated. However, it isn't because you have a specific threat you have responses to that threat and you need and the thing about a sword fight is it is not predictable it is fundamentally unpredictable because you do not know you cannot know in advance exactly how your opponent will respond when you do a certain thing no right some people will you know, react one way when you swing a sword at their head, other people will react a different way. Some people won't even see it. Some people will overreact. Some people will underreact. Some people will just stick their sword out and shut their eyes and hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you have a set of governing ideas and a, a way of moving, mm-hmm. right? And the governing principle is control your opponent's sword. That's it. Yes. Right? And when you've controlled their sword, then you can hit them. And you have a specific way of moving that you have trained to move in because it's reckoned to be more efficient and more powerful and whatever else. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, it teaches you or it can teach you to deal with um, unforeseen circumstances with a considered and sensible response. You don't just panic, right? So when the lockdown thing happened, I looked at the threats and I looked at the thing and I was like, okay. And several days, maybe a week before lockdown was announced, mm-hmm. I had said, okay, we are not going out unless we absolutely have to. We're wearing masks everywhere we go. Um, we will hand sanitizer. And I started, I didn't lay in stores because I think it's, it's antisocial to stockpile. At that point, it, yeah, at that point, yeah, it had become it, so, wasn't it? Yeah. Right. Um, and people were stopping. I mean, there was literally no toilet paper in the supermarkets. No. It's like, why toilet? I mean, you can't wrap toilet paper around yourself and that keeps you safe from COVID-19. That weird, doesn't work. Weird. And like, like half of the world doesn't even use the stuff. So clearly it's not that essential. No. 
<laughs> right? But people were like totally panicked about running out of toilet paper, but yeah. there were bags and bags of lentils. It was very strange, wasn't it? It was very, very, very strange. So you didn't stockpile? No, God, no. No, no, no. Didn't stockpile because I didn't think that there was any need to do it. And I didn't think there was any ethical way to do it. No, no. Right? The, the only time when it's okay to stockpile is when no one else is, basically. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so preppers who've been stockpiling for the last decade, fine. Yeah. They have a huge yeah. stockpile. Now's sure. the time to start eating sure. those cans of beans. Yes. Right. Um, but for those of us who just started thinking, well, obviously, I'm, again, I'm a big believer in having redundancy built into systems. Like when I make a piece of furniture... It has redundancy built in, so the joints are stronger than they need to be, and the yeah, you know, it's it's not overbuilt necessarily, but it has you know, reasonably good tolerances. So yeah, um, so first, okay, this threat is real. And again, the first thing is denial is not your friend. No, right? You you can you can put your opponent into a state of denial, right? at certain levels of fencing. You can literally make them not believe that the thing that's about to happen is about to happen. <laughs> right? It's great. And in that in that moment, you can do whatever you want. Yes. Because they, they can't see it because they have, their brain has decided that it can't be happening. Right? So the first thing is swordsmanship training made it much, much easier for me to simply accept what was going on. This okay. is real. This is happening yeah. right now. No denial. Yeah, right? which is probably quite a powerful and overarching... Right. So, you know, we took our kids out of school a bit early and we had masks in the house anyway, because I, when I travel, like for years, I've been wearing a mask on airplanes. Oh, had you? But not for viruses stuff, but mostly so that my sinuses wouldn't dry out. Oh, okay. Because the air in a, in a pressurized cabin of a international jetliner, the air is very, very dry. Because right. they actually, literally, they, they dry the air. They dehumidify the air. Because if they didn't, all that water being breathed out of people's lungs would condense on the sides of the planes and it would be really disgusting. Got you. Okay. So yeah. the air in an in a aeroplane is much drier than it would normally be. And so it dries your sinuses out and you end up with like sinusitis for the first week of your stay. And it's like, <laughs> it's disgusting. And right? you had so, actual masks in the house as a result. This is awesome. Yeah. I bought a black box of 100 of them. Right. And I hadn't taken that many trips since I bought the box, so we had loads of masks. Fantastic. Which that was just luck. That wasn't. Yeah. No, that no, that no. wasn't like pandemic awareness or anything. It was just luck. Yeah. Okay. So we we're wearing masks everywhere, and we took the kids out of school early. And I was like, "We are not going into shops. We are not going. We will order stuff online." Blah, blah, yeah. And we couldn't order stuff online. No, no. Right. And so one person would go to the shop because, like, if you do the maths, if there's, let's say there's a 50-50 chance of you catching something when you're in there. And you, when you can't know what the actual chance is, you yeah. sort of went out at 50-50. So if one person goes in, there's a 50-50 chance of them catching something. If two people go in, there's a 50-50 chance of both of them, of each, for each one of them, which works out at, after the four possible outcomes, three of them involve one, one or both of those people being infected. Mm-hmm. So the risk isn't the same it's actually gone up by a factor of three so you'd figured that out before we were told you have to shop alone yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just simple math um and so we were like you know so 
mentally comfortable with the idea of, okay, we're hunkering down, see what happens. Yes. Right. So as a result, um, the, the stuff you have done professionally has, has affected the way you approach life yeah. and your kind of readiness to deal with unexpected things. Would right. that be fair? Yeah. And then, yeah. But then on top of that, like, you can't just, like, just hide in your house all the time. No. Because it, like, one of the worst things in a sword fight is to be what the Germans call in the, in the nach, so in the, in the after. In other words, your opponent has all of the initiative and you are just reacting all the time. Right. Right, it's a terrible place to be. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the next thing was, okay, so how do we act? Mm. Right? So what action am I going to take to do this? And I was like, well, I'm not a virologist and I'm not a politician and I'm not a, any kind of useful scientist or anything like that. But what I do have is a community of sword people for whom I am in a leadership role, right? Yes. Okay. So my job is then, having looked after my family, to look after my sword people, right? And so I figured out ways of doing that, right? Yes. Um, making my solo training course available, mm-hmm. for example. Um, writing the next book on how to train by yourself. So um, the principles of solo training. Um, also... In that sort of pandemic period, I started the podcast also as a way to oh, talk to my you? people. I yeah, I started it in right. June oh. 2020. Right, right. right. Um, I, so I also created my Sword School Discord server so that my Sword people had a place to go that wasn't like Facebook or Twitter or somewhere where all sorts of dickheads yeah. were chiming. And we have a private space where we can you know, hang out with fellow Sword people. Yes. Right? And I started my train logs, initially to keep myself fit, but also it's a service for my community because it's free or you can pay something if you want to, but absolutely there's no requirement to do so, so that anyone who is free at that time, whether they have money or not, can show up and do some exercise in company, at least virtual yes. company with other sort of people. And, you know, there's a bit of chat beforehand, there's a bit of chat afterwards. It also has a social function as well as being you know, physical exercise is good for your physical and mental health. Right? So as you, were, yeah, as you were saying before then, the way you work and the way you live is very much integrated, isn't it? Yeah, your job it's one has thing. influenced the way you've socialised. Oh, absolutely. It's, mm. it's, all, it's, it's all one thing, really. Mm. Um, so so that, that's sort of like... Hunkering down and, and masks and taking the kids out of school, that, that's the parry. Yeah. And starting the podcast and doing, you know, getting my newsletter actually working properly and like sending out regular emails to my sword people and having the Discord and all that sort of stuff. That was my very slow and rather inaccurate repost. Yes. Right? Which did nothing to the virus. Let's be clear no. about this. But to the but, people dealing with But to the, the people dealing with the virus, for some people, it was very helpful. For some people, it was a bit helpful. And for some people, it did nothing at all. Yes. But, but the thing is, for myself, casting myself in a position of somebody who is in a position to help other people yeah. is massively empowering. And the biggest problem with the pandemic is it's big, scary, amorphous. You can't do anything about it. And so it is completely unempowering. It basically strips your power away. Yes. Right? 
So deciding that I have the power to go and help my people was massively useful for my own mental health. Yeah, the lovely knock-on effect of that is it's a very useful thing, isn't it? That sometimes right. doing the right thing for other people is exactly the right thing for you, for you to do for yourself yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there... It's, it's, it's not just... It, the writing is also part of it. So... Um, you know, I, I tend to cast all problems in swordsmanship terms. Yeah. Right? And I use I use my understanding of tactics and strategy and approaches and like mental training for clarity under pressure, all that sort of stuff. I use that in whatever situation I happen to be in. Yeah. Regardless. So in that um, way your training and your profession has influenced everything. Yeah, it is because yeah. well, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a separate part of it. It's not like no, no. You know, I, I I know people who like a good friend of mine is an accountant, mm-hmm. right? At work, yes. He's not an accountant at any other time. No, right? No. Um, but I also know someone who's an accountant who's an accountant all the time because they absolutely love that shit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they will tend to see everything in terms of spreadsheets and calculations and balancing this and this comes in and this goes out and blah 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 and it's talking to them as an education because they have such a wildly different worldview to mine yes right so again it's not a question of this specific profession but if i think if your profession is optimally suited to your nature then it is it becomes like just an incorporated part of your whole being I would entirely if you're prof- relate to that, yeah. Right, I bet. Yeah. Whereas if your profession is, this is what I do to make money, but this is what I do to actually have fun or live or whatever, then it's different. Yes. Yeah, right? and, and I think we are lucky, those of us who, and not to say you can't have a very satisfying life if, you're, if your job is one thing and your interests are another, but I do think it's quite a privilege when your job and your interests end up so... Yeah. Interrelated. Yeah. But then, but here's the thing. I spend vastly less time thinking about swords than most people think I do. Understood. Right? Yes. I am not obsessed with swords at all. Right? Most of my friends who I talk to, like my, who I regularly hook up with, um, many of them I have met through swords in some direct or indirect capacity. Understood. Yes. But none of them are sword people in the way of you know they're not practicing sword people right no understood because swords is just it's the tip of the spear yes yeah and it's not right? it's not the sort of the the only reason you have those right. people as friends which is important of course yeah and like okay when I'm you know, teaching people to use swords um, they tend to obsess about the big shiny thing and forget about everything else. And I point out that, you know, if you look at it in terms of mass, if you're 70 kilos and the sword is two, the sword is less than two, well, it's about less than 3% of the total mass of the sword, sword person combination. Yes. Right? So really what, it doesn't deserve all of that attention. You need to be paying attention to other things like your joints and your breathing and all the other stuff. Yes. Right? 
And so if you like, the swords are like the tip of the spear, but most of the spear is shaft. Yes. Right? And a spear tip on its own is a rather unwieldy and crap dagger. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas the spear tip on the end of a spear shaft is one of the foundational weapons of humanity. Yes. Yeah, right? absolutely. So so for me, the swords are just the tip of the spear. They're not, they're not most of what I do. Which, given that this is your job, is an interesting thing to hear, yeah. isn't it? Um, but I think it's one of the luxuries of doing something as a job. You don't need to be completely fixated with it because you've already, you've invested a lot of time and energy into it. So then yeah. it can fit into a kind of healthy place in your life, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's a sort of on topic. Uh, it's just what you said reminded me of a time, uh, must have been like 2010 perhaps when my kids were quite little mm-hmm. and I happened to mention in passing to my one of my students the guy who was at that time running the association of my students in Helsinki that you know well no I hadn't actually like gone away on holiday for about seven years now mm-hmm. and he was like you got poor family we can't do it no we went into the office and then we had this wall chart of you know, the year so a year calendar wall chart thing and he's hand me a pen and said take three pick three weeks yes sometime in the summer and I just uh, okay well I'm going to America there and I'm da, 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 so somewhere between there right, okay doink 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 right so those three weeks and he crossed them off and he said you are not working this week these weeks we will look after things you go away good yes so yes. I was like Oh, and then I took like three weeks off from teaching and stuff and spent the time like, you know, hanging out with the kids. And I think we went somewhere, I don't remember. We didn't, we didn't go off and land some kind of like beach holiday or something. We basically just had the time off. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, this is so good. Yeah. <laughs> well, and guess what? My classes were better when I got back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Funny yeah, that. It is, it's really important, isn't it? And when you're self-employed, it's very tempting just never to take any time off. So yeah, good. Yeah, you know, at any any given moment, I'm well aware that I could be working on the next course or working on the next book or producing the next thing and all that, and I could make more money. And blah, 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 blah. It's like, but you know what? It wouldn't be such a good thing I was producing. Like the no. the mental breaks are critically important to the whole totally. thing. We've been talking for two hours. So I feel which, which like actually, I've actually for stopped. us counts as a short conversation. Yeah, it's very, very short. But <laughs> I can't I can't finish without I just need you to answer the question I asked you right at the beginning about um like what are you gonna do with your pilot's license? I just need to know, like when you can, what what is your aim? Okay. Fly. I need to know. Right, okay. You need to you need to know about flying. All right. I just need to know. I have absolutely no agenda for flying whatsoever. Okay. Okay. As a means of getting from A to B, renting a plane, which you can do when you've got your private pilot's license, and taking that plane to some airfield somewhere else is incredibly expensive and inefficient. Right? Yes, that's rather what I was thinking. Yeah. For some people in some places, it's an efficient and sensible use of time. Uh, use, use, uh, a, a sensible and efficient way of getting around. Australia, for example. Sure. Right? If you are a vet in Australia going from farm to farm and there's like 200 miles between each farm and, you know, 
and there's plenty of space to land the plane, a plane is probably the best way to get around, right? Yes. But in Britain, no. Uh, it makes no sense at all. So what is it that you The whole do? point of flying a plane is because it's fucking awesome. That is a That's very it. reasonable reason. There is no other reason. Like, you know, my dad has asked me a couple of times, so, so Guy, why do you want a pilot's license? I was like, well, I don't actually want a pilot's license. I don't care about getting a pilot's license, right? It's entirely irrelevant to me, right? You just want to be but, able to fly. Right, in the process of learning to fly well, because flying is really dangerous and it's much better to do it, learn to do it well because then you're much safer. Yes. Or you're less yes. likely to die doing it, yes. right? Um, so learning to fly well, you need to be taught in a systematic way. Sure. And so being taught in a systematic way, the, the, the way that that is designed and structured is to take you from beginner to getting your private pilot's license. And then there's all sorts of stuff you can do beyond that. Right. And so it makes sense to follow that progression. Yes, absolutely. Okay? Because it already exists. Yeah. Right. But it is not impossible that I will get somewhere along the way and go, I have scratched the itch and now I'm going to stop. Yes. Right. Fine. Yeah. Itch is scratched. What I prob, what it feels like, because what I really like about it is I'm in the plane, we're going up in the air and we're turning this way and we're turning that way and, and I'm flying. I'm literally flying like a bird. Yeah. Well, I'm not flapping my wings, but I'm no. a bird. Yeah. Right? It's just magic. It's like scuba diving. Right? Yeah. Being down under the water and you can breathe under the water and you can kind of float around and swim around and yeah, see fish. What a mind-bending, extraordinary thing to be able to do. It's, it's awesome. It's amazing. Now... I love flying more than I love scuba diving. I've only ever scuba dived the once. Um, and it was fantastic. But the level of sort of time and training and money and investment, whatever, I don't love it enough. Planes, I do. So, um, so you're literally th- doing it just for the love of the activity. Itself, right. Basically. I think mm-hmm. if, this, if this trajectory continues, I will end up doing aerobatics. Right? Because that's like ultimate freedom in the air. Yes. Right? You can sort of spin the plane around and turn it around and flip it about and fly on your side and fly upside down and do loop-de-loops and barrel rolls and all that sort of stuff. Right? To do that, you must be entirely integrated with the machine. Yes. Right, so the machine is basically like a suit of armor that you've put on that allows yeah. you to fly. Yeah. Right? Um, so, yeah, going up and going to a different airport and coming down again, not interesting. Going up and flying about and doing stuff is just fabulous. So, uh, yes, I can, I can but see. It's, it's not impossible that someone from the tax office is listening. In which case, let me be perfectly clear. Mm. Mm. I am currently working on a book called, well, provisionally titled The Heart of Teaching, which is about how to teach historical martial arts or indeed anything else. Any practical skills, basically. Yes. Okay. It's probably vital for you to be trained by someone else with a different practical skill. Well, exactly. Well, and, and the thing is, swords are dangerous. Mm. Plays and, dangerous. Right. And so, you know, um, we have this well-established, legally recognized, thoroughly worked out 
um, system of taking absolute novices to being competent pilots yes. in this very dangerous environment where you simply cannot make a single significant mistake or you will die. Yes. Right? That is, that is an, ob- an obvious parallel to swords. Yes. Right? Yes. So as part of the research process for the book, mm-hmm. I am diving into the pilot training procedure thing. Right, so that I can see that system from the inside and thus understand it properly. Because I don't understand yeah. stuff just by looking at books. I understand sure. stuff by doing it. Yes. So I'm doing that so I can see how it's structured, see how it's put together, see how they do it, and hopefully draw important lessons from that that I can put in my new book. Well, so that it's a research like a project. Solely and exclusively business expense. Exactly. You've you've nailed it, Ariel. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you for letting me interview you. This has been a very delightful thing. And I still have a million more questions, but I'll stop because I feel like the people who are listening have probably finished their dress or their cabinet now um, and maybe go and need to have a cup of tea. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ariel or Ariel's conversation with me. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Christian Tobler, who is a chivalric combat instructor, author of many books, including Secrets of German Medieval Swordsmanship, Fighting with a German Longsword, In St. George's Name, an anthology of medieval German fighting arts, and so on and so on and so on, including his latest, Lance, Spear, Sword and Messer, a German medieval martial arts miscellany. Christian has been into the medieval scene since the 70s, and he can take considerable credit for being Jessica Finley's instructor. That's Jessica, who was the first guest on this show and an old friend of the podcast. So, you don't want to miss that. Christian and I get into all sorts of, sort of technical details around German and Italian swordsmanship and book writing and that sort of thing. So, you don't want to miss it. So, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. Thank you.